content warning. This episode contains references to violence, murder, and suicide. Please call or visit the hotlines in the description if you're seeking help. Hello everyone, welcome to I Murder, the podcast where Gen Z talks true crime. I'm Jocelyn Martinez, an 18-year-old girl from Florida who has been fascinated by true crime and mysteries for as long as I can remember. Every other episode, I'll be inviting a special guest to discuss the murder of the week. Today, we have TikTok influencer Soleil Golden joining us. Hey! Hi, Jocelyn! How's it going? How do you feel? It's good. I can't wait to talk about this really interesting case today, and I'm very excited to be in your presence, even though I'm looking at you through a tiny little box, but that's okay. It's so beautiful. <laughs> oh, thank you. I know. Um, you are infinitely prettier than me, so it's definitely more of a pleasure looking at your face. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't disagree. Okay, <laughs> that's good to hear. Um, well, actually, while I was researching this case, um, like when I first found out about it, I thought of you not just because, I, you know, I can't pronounce most of the French words in this case, but mm-hmm. because I thought it was so fascinating and I know that you'd be interested in it just as much as I am. So without further ado, let's get started. Yay! So on April 11, 2011, at around 2 p.m., Estelle Chapon noticed something strange at her next-door neighbor's home at 55 Schumann Boulevard. There lived a seemingly perfect upper-middle-class Catholic family known as the Dupont de Ligones. They were known by just about everyone in the quiet town of Nantes, situated in the west of France. Xavier was known to be charming, social, He came from a prestigious aristocratic family, like his dad was a count, so you know that they were like really popular and well-known. He, um, his wife, Agne, worked in a Catholic school and she was really religious. Arthur was their eldest child. He was 20 years old and he was in college, but it's important to note that he wasn't Xavier's biological child. Thomas was 18 years old. He was Xavier's first child, and he was really passionate about music. Anne was 16. She was really pretty, so she modeled for French catalogs, but she was also a really good student. She was actually the best student out of all of the kids. So basically and, me. So, ba- um, I mean, I, I guess minus, like, the pretty part. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay, so the youngest was... <laughs> The youngest was Benoit. He was 13 years old, and he loved playing the drums. So on that Monday afternoon, their neighbor noticed a sudden change in their home. The house was quieter than usual. You know, it was typically noisy, especially coming from, like, a musically inclined family. Um, Another thing to note is that the windows were boarded shut, though they were always open, even when they were away on vacation. And there was even a return to sender note above their mailbox so mail wouldn't be sent there anymore. Estelle felt something in her gut that so many have felt before. She felt that something was wrong. It was after two days of silence and worry that she finally called the police. On April 13th, the police arrived to check on the house. The first thing they noticed was that the front door was locked and the shutters were still closed. Walking inside, everything seemed to be in place besides some bed sheets that were missing and the closets that were left open. From the police's point of view, it seemed like the family had completely left 
voluntarily. There was absolutely no need to open a formal investigation. But this didn't bring a halt to Estelle's concerns. She knew that there was one detail that the local police had missed. All of the cars belonging to the Dupont de Ligones were in the driveway, except for the C5. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with French cars. I know for a fact that I'm not familiar at all. <laughs> but um, think of the C5 as kind of like a small sedan. Think like Toyota Camry. Um, I remember uh, sending you a picture of it uh, a little earlier. Mm-hmm. And um, for our listeners, if you want to have like a visual of this case, you can follow our Instagram at Podcast, And there you're going to find... Um, pictures related to this case including of of this car so um once you pull it up you can notice that it's like a pretty small car right like Mm -hmm. can you imagine trying to fit four kids a wife a husband and two labrador retrievers in that car um do some real tetris and pile on top of each other. <laughs> not possible at all they do some like uh aerobics gymnastics yeah. or something no it's just it's not likely at all and the worst part is that like the police didn't see an issue with this um so they just thought you know like they they probably made it work like we this isn't <laughs> enough to give us <laughs> this isn't enough to concern us so um for Estelle that was that was it there was nothing more she could do until the very next day several friends and family received a mysterious letter a letter that launched what would be known as one of the most mind-boggling cases of murder in all of France and it was written by Xavier himself he explains how the US recruited him to infiltrate an international drug ring And the mission had become so dangerous that him and his family had to move to the United States under witness protection program. Which Um, (laughs) I don't know what kind of action movies this man watched while he was writing this letter, (laughs) but that's that's very, very um, far from probable. Yeah, like he was watching a little bit too much um, (laughs) Fast and the Furious. watching a little bit too much of the action movies yeah um i definitely think it's a stretch and um you know like believe it or not after the initial confusion some of the people who received the letter actually believed him oh god yeah and this is actually because xavier was known as an adventurous person like he was always full of surprises so it wasn't an overwhelming shock when they read the contents of the letter now, something I do want to mention is the huge lack of emotion or grief in his writing. Xavier basically leaves a set of instructions, almost like a will, formally detailing who each of his belongings should go to after they're leaving. And this like always rubbed me the wrong way because like for someone who's allegedly dropping everything, moving to another country and never seeing or speaking to their friends or family again, like there wasn't one heartfelt message in that letter so it's just really weird yeah if you look at it i mean other than the fact that the house was left completely empty which was really uncharacteristic of them Mm -hmm. the fact that the letter is just so i don't know it seems really didactic and almost like a set of instructions you would get when you're putting together a piece of furniture like it's just emotionless and that should have been the one of the first major red flags Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, 
naturally not everyone believes this story like as you mentioned some people were able to pick up on those red flags especially Anya's family um after they received the letter they immediately went to the Nantes district attorney explaining how Anya wouldn't have left without at least giving them a phone call and as many of us true crime fans know the squeaky wheel gets the grease so after Anya's family pressed on and on about their suspicions the police returned to the DuPont house on April 15th to perform a more thorough search. But still, nothing seemed out of place. Except for one thing. They noticed that some of the photos around the house were missing from their frames. So there were like a bunch of missing photo frames around the house. But this still isn't enough to provide answers. So Anya's family continued to press on. So on April 18th, the police visited again. And nothing. April 19th, their fourth visit. An investigation was finally launched, and almost right away, the investigators discovered some suspicious materials purchased by Xavier, including cement, four bags of lime, a shovel, burlap sacks, and a hoe. Which, if you are seeking to murder an entire family, just follow that grocery list. That's literally all you need. It's the fact that he didn't even try to hide that he was literally putting together a perfect murder kit. Um, yeah. That's a little... It's a concerning. Little suspicious. It's concerning. Yeah, he should have He should have written on the receipt, I'm about to commit a murder. <laughs> like, <laughs> he was just going to do that. In case you guys wanted to know what I was doing with all this stuff, I'm probably going to kill everybody. Just in case you yeah, want to know. Just so you know. I'm definitely not harvesting a garden. I'm actually <laughs> going to kill my entire family. <laughs> So um, on April 20th, and the police went to visit again and nothing. Until April 21st, investigators returned to the DuPont home one last time. This time, something odd was found under the terrace by the police lieutenant. They began to dig, only to make a terrifying discovery. There, under rubble and dirt, lay the remains of Agnès Dupont de Ligones, the four kids, and the two dogs. No sign of Xavier, no sign of a murder weapon. Their bodies were wrapped in blankets, placed in separate black garbage bags, and bound with tape. Agnès and three of the kids were placed in one grave, the two dogs in another, and Thomas, the second eldest, in a separate one. Their bodies were wrapped in blankets, placed in separate black garbage bags, and bound with tape. Anye and three of the kids were placed in one grave, the two dogs in another, and Thomas, the second eldest, in a completely separate one. Wrapped in each blanket was a small religious icon, like a cross or a candle, indicating that this was a ceremonial burial. This was personal, and it was clear that the family had a personal relationship with their murderer. Now... I couldn't find any articles explaining what prompted the police to look under the patio specifically, but if we go back to Xavier's letter, there is one interesting detail that could have hinted at the disposal site. So after describing the things he would give to each of his loved ones, he writes, quote, P.S. No need to worry about the metal detector or the canoe, which can stay there nor the rubble and the other mess piled up on the terrace at the end of the garden and in the basement. That was all there when we moved in, unquote. <laughs> he literally said, um, I really, you know, just, just don't go over there. I mean, I'm yeah. telling you where not to go, so you're likely going to go over there anyway, but, but don't. <laughs> um, 
and yeah yeah and big bold letters i didn't just just in case you're curious i didn't murder my family under the terrace so don't look under there don't all there. of that was already there it was, it was there. my already. dead family was there when we moved into that when we moved in yeah <laughs> because of all these signs that were pointing to the only missing member of the family xavier became the prime suspect and an international warrant for him was placed however this didn't convince some of xavier's friends and family to the people that knew him personally, they say that he wasn't capable of doing such a horrendous act. They describe him as kind, generous, and on top of everything, he was a family man. He always put his kids in first place, even being affectionate with them. Plus, he suffered from such intense back pain that it was nearly impossible for him to bend down for enough time to bury his entire family. Which, personally, like, I don't see how... Um, you know, like any kind of back pain. Like if if you are set on murdering your entire family, I don't think back pain is going to stop you exactly. from finishing that there's off. There's literally no, there's no amount of of any kind of pain, honestly, that can, can that can prevent someone when they're in a high stress situation from doing what they believe they need to do to survive. And after you've just murdered someone, if you're trying to get away with it, I mean, it's been known that your pain receptors get numbed when you're in a high intensity situation and with lots of adrenaline mm -hmm. rushes. Like you're not going to, if you're running away from a lion, you're not going to look down and see that you cut your foot on a stone. You're not going to notice that until after you're to safety. So yeah. likely if he had back pain, he took a Advil and sucked it up and got under that terrace and did what he believed he needed to do exactly that's a that's a really interesting point and that, that's probably exactly what happened um so the next day on the 22nd a formal autopsy was performed on the family so according to the report the victims died between the night of april 3rd and the morning of april 4th so it was kind of like 3 a.m around there the children contained traces of sleeping pills in their viscera indicating that they were put to sleep their mother Annie suffered from sleep apnea and required a machine to help her sleep. It is noted, though, that her machine suddenly stopped at around 3 a.m., causing investigators to believe that she was the first to be killed. The children were killed afterwards. These victims were murdered by two bullet shots to the head, the bullets belonging to a .22 long rifle. However, neighbors weren't woken up by any gunshots, which led the police to believe that a silencer was most likely used to muffle the noise. It should also be noted that this wasn't a messy murder at all. These were completely methodical executions, even clean. There was no trace of blood in any of the rooms, not even a speck left behind. So when crime scene investigators sweep the entire house, there wasn't a single piece of physical evidence that could implicate Xavier. And no one could really understand how someone who had never had a run-in with the law could escalate so quickly to executing his entire family. Like, he wasn't just killing his family, but he was completely terminating his lineage. Exactly. Meaning, and also, when you're yeah, considering no one, the fact mm -hmm. that he he had never had any run-ins with the law and he had also never had any mental health counseling of any kind he'd never been yeah. to a psychiatrist um for to be checked out for anything so this came up really out of nowhere they seemed like the picture perfect family then all of a sudden um this terrible thing happened 
Exactly. Yeah. And um, also mentioning like he came from an aristocratic family. And when you come from an aristocratic lineage, your um, your status and uh, your reputation is of the utmost importance. And especially having someone continue to carry on your name throughout the decades, that is so important. And so by killing his entire family, he would be completely terminating that, um, which is a crime in itself for, for aristocratic families. And so because investigators couldn't wrap their mind around how such a tragedy could happen in a seemingly perfect family, kind of like how you mentioned, they decided to take a closer look into their lives. So, Xavier was a businessman, and he owned numerous enterprises. From an outside perspective, he was perfectly successful, and he kind of was. He was pretty successful um, from the start. But by 2011, the reality is that the family was in severe debt. Xavier's businesses were failing drastically, and they had obtained over $60,000 in debt. And on top of that, as a result of trying and failing to move to the United States, the family faced even more financial repercussions. Just before the murders, the Dupont de Ligones were almost out of so much money that they would have had to move out of their own house. Xavier's friends and family described him as vain and proud, unwilling to admit his financial difficulties, not even to his own children. So they were completely unaware of the struggles that their father was facing at the time. So a few months before the murders, exactly on January 20th, 2011, Xavier's father, Bernard Hubert Dupont de Ligones, died of a heart attack. He took a trip to his father's home to clean out his belongings and hopefully find any leftover money. But to his defeat, he couldn't find anything of value. Turns out his dad was facing similar financial struggles just as him. However, he did discover one thing. A .22 caliber long rifle, the same weapon used to kill his family on that horrid night. With this newly found weapon, he sought a firearms license on February 9th. According to his friends, this was strange. He had never shown any prior interest in firearms, and it seemed like this had consumed him entirely. He regularly practiced using the rifle, even going to the shooting range with his two sons. And a few days before the murders, he attended the shooting range up to four times in one week. Even on one occasion, he asked his instructor questions about silencers. Then he went on to buy one on March 12th, which happened to be used to kill his family. Now, let's talk about Thomas. He was the second eldest son in the DuPont family. And as I had mentioned earlier, his remains were discovered in a completely separate grave from the rest of the family, which led investigators to believe that he wasn't killed at the same time as his family. On the weekend of the murders, Thomas had returned to his university. His family was murdered on Sunday night or Monday morning. On Tuesday, he was at a friend's house when his father made an urgent phone call, telling him that his mom had gotten into a cycling accident which put her under a coma, and he didn't know if she was going to make it. So he asked him to come back to Nantes ASAP, and he did just that. Thomas left his friend's house at around 10 p.m. that night. He caught a train to Nantes and was last heard around midnight when he texted his friend, quote, I'm not coming to yours. I'm ill, really ill. I'm not coming to class, end quote. And so a lot of people have suspected why Thomas was the last to be killed, 
And the most probable answer is that Thomas was Xavier's first biological son, meaning that uh, killing him would mean killing his entire lineage. Um, so naturally, he probably hesitated um, in killing him. Yeah, a lot of times uh, this happens with family annihilators. Firstly, um, usually the the sons are um, the sons are usually taken out with the entire family, primarily because if um, you know eighty three percent of all family annihilators are men, are the fathers, and they often see mm-hmm. older sons as sort of power threats, and so. Um, if they're set on killing their family, they have no they have no problem um, killing their sons as well. But um, in this case, with with Thomas being Xavier's first biological son, he likely saw he, he likely had um, a different relationship with him, um, and primarily, you know, when when he thought of his kids, he thought of Thomas first. So when when Thomas came home that night, there's even the argument that he never intended on killing him. Um, and maybe something happened and they got into an argument and it escalated. So um, he did it and there might be some regret in there. And I think that's important to note. Oh, for sure. I think that's definitely an interesting point. And that kind of also gives us an insight on like what he was thinking um, while he was committing these murders. And so after the bodies were discovered under the terrace, the police went on an immediate search for Xavier. That same night, Xavier's missing car, the C5 that we had mentioned, was found in a hotel parking lot in Rockenbrunn-sur-Agence, 10 hours south of Nantes. Investigators took this location kind of like as a starting point to work backwards and construct Xavier's actions throughout the week after his family's murder. So this is kind of like the timeline that they constructed. He spent a week in the house after the murders, leaving exactly on April 10th towards La Rochelle. Xavier was on the run. However, unlike many criminals who have fled their towns in the past, Xavier took his time. He didn't seem to be in any kind of rush and didn't take any kind of caution. He freely used his bank cards at restaurants and didn't avoid getting caught by security cameras in public areas. This behavior heavily contrasted the clean and precise behavior in the crime scene, making it out to seem that he was probably planning on committing suicide. So one theory is that he was intentionally visiting certain cities in the South in order to say goodbye to his past life. Some places he visited were places of significance to the early years of Xavier and Agnès' marriage. Other places were places where his children had been born. He was leaving behind his past life and possibly accepting his self-inflicted death soon to come. Oh, I was just going to say, I think... um even more so than the murders themselves, his actions after he killed his family speak more to his psychopathy than the than the mental state it takes to kill that many people, primarily because, one, the amount of just unsteadiness that it must be able to take to spend a whole entire week in the house, in the empty house, after murdering your entire family knowing that they're a few feet away from you that's shocking to me and it's it's really um it's really unsettling and also to be able to complete that 10-hour drive in one of your family cars and also going to Mm -hmm. places of significance to the family that you just killed 
it's just it's mind-boggling and that's one of the most chilling aspects of this case oh for sure i feel like it kind of gives us a little more insight too like it makes you think did he see himself as a victim in this case i think that it's highly probable that he saw himself as a victim a lot of times um with this kind of family annihilator these are called anomic family annihilators where they um their motivations behind the murders are for financial reasons or they've recently come into an intense amount of debt and so they see these family annihilators see their families as a symbol of their wealth like the fact that their kids are so successful Mm -hmm. and that they have been able to accomplish all these things you've got two kids in college one that's model one that's really musically inclined and so you see your kids as Mm -hmm. an investment in a way and the fact that that investment began to depreciate it just you know a lot of times they see it to themselves as well this is something that i have to do i don't want to do this but i have to do it because um everything that i've known for my entire life since i've had kids or since i've had a successful catholic family all of that is changing now and so I have to make some changes too. So he probably um, he probably saw himself as, you know, like he, these were almost mercy killings in a way, sort of saving his family's image. Yeah. Which um, that's that's a really common uh, that's a really common sentiment amongst family annihilators. Is it right? Absolutely mm-hmm. not. It takes intense psychopathy to be able to do this, especially since you yeah. hold your children to such high standards and you as an aristocratic family you hold your entire family to such high standards but he was still able to do it because he probably saw that as the only way out and so now he's going and going to all these different places as a way of sort of letting himself say goodbye because he doesn't believe that he got that which is so incredibly frustrating too because if you think about it like he got the chance to visit all of these places of sentiment but he took that away from his entire family and it's obviously not fair at all Um, like the thing is we can see it as selfish because you know we're on the outside looking in but to him it probably was he, he probably thought that it was just it was warranted and it was the right thing to do on his end but now that someone else is, um, that we're able to judge his actions after the fact, it just seems so wrong. Um, but definitely sure. to him, he probably, um, he thought that he could do no wrong. Yeah. He saw himself as kind of like the savior in this case, like saving his family from any further embarrassment if it were to be found out that they were suffering financially. Mm-hmm. And going through the public display of yeah. moving out of their house, like that would... That would also be, especially in European communities, losing the family home. Like here, I mean, people go through financial troubles all the time. We Americans cycle through houses like water. But in in yeah, um, you keep your family homes and in your name, in your family name for long periods of time. And losing that house would have meant severe trouble for them. So, on April 15th, Xavier was caught on a Formula One hotel security camera carrying a bag that contained a long object. It's believed that this object was a rifle used to kill his family. The camera catches him walking alone towards a forested area, and this would be known as the last ever sighting of Xavier Dupont de Ligones. 
It's widely believed that he committed suicide in the forest after that last sighting. Rokenbrun-sur-Agens is a heavily wooded area, which meant that if they wanted to find his remains, a deep search had to be made. So the police spent weeks and weeks organizing search parties to find him. They searched every hole, cave, and crevice, but a body was never found. Investigators were fully convinced that he had committed suicide, like that was no question. But some people believe it was all an act. They believe that what was caught on the security camera was simply a performance in order to buy himself more time, like more time to flee the country. Although no traces of plane tickets were found under his name, but it's still fully possible that he boarded the first boat out of the area since he was, you know, by waters. Um, he could have also, like, gone through a mountainous path to Italy. He could have gone on a train to Croatia or even traveled to Latin America since Spanish is one of his strong languages. So ever since his last sighting in Rockenbrun sur Agens, there have been thousands upon thousands of tips and sightings reported on Xavier around the entire globe. The biggest struggle in this manhunt for Xavier is that he looks just like any other man. He has no prominent features and he can be easily mistaken as any middle-aged white male. It's been nearly 10 years since the death of the Dupont de Ligones family and the disappearance of Xavier. There haven't been any strong leads that have provided concrete answers to this tragedy. But there is one thing certain. The names of Agne, Thomas, Benoit, Arthur, and Anne must live on. We must continue to honor their names, just as a community of Nantes has every year. If anyone listening has any knowledge on the disappearance of Xavier Dupont de Ligones, even if it's a small amount of information, please visit the tip line linked in the description of this episode. So those are all the details of this case. What do you think happened? Like, what, where is your head at right Honestly, now? Honestly, the first place my mind goes to is anger, primarily because just the fact yeah. that, you know, if we're if we look at statistics, eighty three percent of male fam- family annihilators kill themselves after they've killed their family, and that's the most common mm-hmm. thing to do because it feels like you're taking out everyone in one fell swoop. But there are so many deviations from the norm in this case that, like analytical minds like us, we it's really yeah. really hard for us to grasp onto it because one, he didn't kill his whole family together. Um, he let Thomas live longer. And two, he didn't kill himself afterward. Mm-hmm. It, it, it looks like he was on the run, but then there's no indication of him being on the run. So now it's just like there's so many things that are open. I think it's highly probable. Yeah, like yeah, left exactly. unanswered. I think it's highly probable that he could, um, he, he could be honestly just somewhere in the European countryside, like living a life in solitude because one thing that's important to note about about European countries is how how different it is from um, from in America where everything we have is just it's so on the grid like we track everything that we do we buy things online we shop in stores for everything whereas if you wanted to live a life in solitude in Europe that's why so many people go backpacking it's so easy to get away and get off yeah. the grid for a long period of time and for someone who is a native to Europe, and like you said, he, he speaks Spanish um, and French, and mm-hmm. most French people also speak English, but um, he's he's cultured, he's a businessman, so he's traveled, 
he's smart and also he has what's playing in his favor the fact that he has really no distinct features about him um that could that could point anyone to him even though everybody and their mother says they've seen this man they're like i saw him yesterday yeah out buying my groceries girl no you didn't you know you want to just exactly but you saw exactly you You just saw a basic white man "Hmm, that looks like it could be but a family annihilator that's been on the run for almost 10 years but yeah i think it would be easy to just chalk it up and say yeah he killed himself because you know he felt the need to um after he visited all these places but nothing about his behavior after the murders like in my opinion i know we say like him being careless buying things whatever um i think that's Mm -hmm. just a form of arrogance and a, a way of saying you didn't catch me look mm-hmm. at all the things i'm doing he's almost mocking the people that were so desperately looking for him for so long and now that he's completely yeah. disappeared that would be the greatest they wasted all of that infrastructure of looking for someone who's never going to be found exactly and and one interesting detail too is that he was uh the bodies were found on the 21st and if he did commit suicide or if he did run away his last sighting was on the 15th, six days before they even found the body. So that means he basically like almost won, you know, like he got what he wanted. He got the time he needed and he if, to flee to the country or to commit suicide. And, you know, he knew what he was doing. Like one detail is that he bought um, four bags of lime and it's known that lime is used to compress uh, the smell of decomposing bodies and it also like quickens the pace of decomposing bodies so it's harder to identify um if they were found and that exactly uh gave him more time it it prevented from any of the Mm -hmm. officials to know where the bodies were until like the fourth or fifth visit so he got what he wanted he planned it out thoroughly and what's most mind-boggling for me personally is that he's never had any run-ins with the law usually when it comes to people who commit murders there is um you know like an escalation of crimes that lead up to the biggest one which is like killing your entire family but we don't see that in this case as for um people who take out their entire families most of the time it's complete shock like they're family men they coach their kids Mm. teams they are good husbands they don't have any surface affairs however we know that he had an affair after yeah. we figured it out um with, with his mistress with his so mistress yeah. a lot of times they look like like we were all saying we look picture perfect but what happens is they 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 end up unsolved or for a long period of time because they everything about the family says this is not this wouldn't happen to them and so Especially with the men, yeah. like, usually, like, um, men can be aggressive, they can, you know, be abusive, but none of that was present here, and it, and it usually, you know, it, it usually isn't with family and I, it just comes out of nowhere. But also, um, mm-hmm. just because it's, it, it's expected doesn't mean, you know, it's any less frustrating when we learn all the details. It's still, this is really um, angering. Uh, yeah. Definitely. I mean, I guess that's the end of our episode. Um, It was a great first episode. Um, And of course, like I had mentioned, if you know any information about this case, visit the link that is um, in the description. And before we go, Soleil, do you want to 
plug in any projects you're working on yeah, any of your okay, socials so my instagram is at the real kylie jenner um my tiktok no my instagram is golden soleil um spelled the french way and um my tiktok is at toxic syndrome and i'm actually currently working on a podcast of my own where i'll be discussing psychopathology and different mental illnesses and just life um and i'm going to be having jocelyn on and we're gonna have so much fun um and i'm really really excited yeah we are that's my best friend and we're gonna cut it up on the podcast mm-hmm. so i'm excited for that okay yeah that's that's awesome and i'm excited to hear yes. podcast too we're gonna Thank be podcast besties and um as always you can follow our instagram at i murder podcast for more um references to this case and for any updates on upcoming episodes we will be posting every friday and we'll be having a guest over every other week so stay tuned for that and as always you can't be a hottie if you're a dead body don't trust men don't trust men we hate men we hate men all right bye This episode was written, produced, edited, and hosted by Jocelyn Martinez. Music by Kaylee Fermin.